This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Jerry Mitchell remembers what so many others want to forget. For more than three decades, he worked as an investigative reporter for the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi. During that time, his dogged reporting helped put four Klansmen in jail after they had eluded justice year after year for their heinous crimes in the 1960s. Mitchell tells this story of justice delayed and finally done in his new book, Race Against Time, where a reporter reopens the unsolved murder cases of the civil rights era, published by Simon & Schuster. Mitchell captures so many of the complexities and contradictions of the Deep South. For example, he writes this, This was Mississippi, a place where some of the nation's poorest people live on some of the world's richest soil, a place with the nation's highest illiteracy and some of the world's greatest writers. And I might add, as a resident of Alabama next door, a place also known for being first in religion and last in just about everything else, a place like much of the South where the churches are full and where racism has so long flourished alongside Mitchell joins me on Gospel Bound to discuss what compelled him to seek justice, the Christian pretensions of the Ku Klux Klan, and whether the gospel can finally bring healing to this beautiful and broken land. Thank you for joining me, Jerry. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, Jerry, what compelled you to devote your life to these stories at a time when so many other white Southerners just wanted to forget? I think the injustices, you know, I saw the movie Mississippi Burning, which is about the three civil rights workers who were uh, those three young men, Mickey Schwerner and James Cheney and, and Andy Goodman, who were, you know, brutally killed by the Klan and their bodies buried 15 feet down in an earthen dam, you know, weren't found for 44 days. Um, and none of those, none of the Klansmen, more than 20 Klansmen involved, none of them have ever been prosecuted for murder. And that, that was something I just couldn't wrap my head around. Yeah. Um, and yet so many other people made peace with that or just ignored it. What made you different there? Well, I, I, I think, you know, I'm, uh, you know, from a different generation, I, I'm, I'm also, I guess, a tiny bit of an outsider. I'm from the South, but I wasn't from Mississippi. Um but it just shot me. It just shot me. I, I, that's all I can say. And this was 89. This is 25 years later, obviously, of, after the murders take place. And, um, yeah, hmm. so I just, you know, I, I just couldn't believe I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that uh, these guys had gotten away with murder. Hmm. Were you intentional in the book of drawing so much attention to the Ku Klux Klan's Christian pretensions? It's a it's a consistent theme in the book. I mean, I think of Delmar Dennis. The Klan informant pictured with a white hood in one hand and a Bible yeah. in the other, or yeah. Sam Bowers, the imperial wizard who taught Sunday school each week at his Baptist church in Laurel, Mississippi, or Baptist preacher and KKK member Edgar Ray Killen living a mile away 
from where those murders happened in Mississippi, and at the same time displaying the Ten Commandments in his front yard, including thou shalt not murder. Was that something you were trying to draw attention to in the book? Well, you know, I don't know that I did it on purpose, but I, I but I, it was a conscious thing in my mind, the, the, the contradictions. Uh, I guess I, what I was trying to point out is the contradictions in that, in my mind, of, you know, having the Ten Commandments on display in your lawn and being guilty of murder. I mean, that's kind of kind of fascinating. Of course, when he, he he said he didn't believe in murder, he believed in self-defense. That's what he told me, Gray Kellen told me. So that, I thought that was kind of fascinating. As in like defending his way of life, I suppose? Exactly. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. And kind of Bowers, uh, Sam Bowers, the head of the Klan, talked about that as well. Hmm. Wow. I mean, did you see those appeals to Christianity, some of the rationales that they would give theological or spiritual. You talk about the Christian identity movement quite a bit yeah. in the book. Do you see yeah. those as sincere or as merely manipulative, some kind of veneer to give some kind of exalted self-importance? Well, Christian identity is pretty, pretty vile. It's, it's horribly racist. I mean, it's, it's not mainstream at all. It's, um, it, it's, it was kind of, a, I came out of what we would call, Anglo-Israelism, this belief that the, you know, the 10 European nations are part of the lost tribes of Israel. And, you know, just, uh, anyway, but it devolved into this horribly kind of racist uh, religion. So, yeah. Hmm. And they use the Bible to kind of justify this. I talk a little bit about that, uh, where they supposedly get all this from. It's pretty awful stuff. Yeah, it is easily beyond the pale I, I wonder if the extreme examples do they maybe distract our attention in some ways i mean these are of course the people who committed the worst murders there's no doubt about exactly. that yeah, of um course. and yet they act they acted within an environment of plenty of other people who believed the bible and didn't believe those things yet yeah. were more than willing to cover up yeah, no, now. you're right. And, or to be silent or to not talk or, yeah, whatever it was, cover up for them. So, yeah. And police officers being involved in the Klan. And, uh, you know, it's just the list kind of goes on and on of people that did a lot of things in the name of, of Christianity. And, and obviously those of us who who are consider ourselves Christian are pretty horrified by it. At least I would hope so. Yeah. And hopefully more increasingly with time. And yet um, I do think one of the lessons I'm often drawn to is it seems obvious to see those problems. And yet I wonder how many of us would have really said something different if our own lives yeah. were at risk. Oh, yeah, I think that's, that's accurate. And I think someone, uh, uh, you know, was, Mississippi was called at the time, the closed society. His idea was if you, you were white even and spoke out much less African-American, you would be ostracized. You would be, and, and many were, they were basically run out of the state, uh, you know, African-American and white right. uh, for, for standing up for, you know, basically allowing all citizens to be equal. Well, a number of, I mean, even including with the civil rights workers, two are white. Now they're, yep. uh, and then of course um, also James Reeb, here in Alabama in Selma. So it's not, it's not as if, I mean, and of course many of those were quote unquote considered outsiders. And so they would face even more problems. But I think with the, I don't know if you have listened to the white lies podcast and NPR did about Reeb's murder. 
I figured you guys must be connected given your overlapping interest and given your role in using journalism to expose this. Did you have any thoughts about that podcast? Seems like they did some of the similar things that you did. They, they unearthed some things that law enforcement had missed. Yeah, well, exactly. And I think there, there, there were law enforcement didn't apparently really want to solve the case. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what happened over and over again. I mean, they quote unquote, you know, went to trial and nothing happened or, or you know, the guys were acquitted or things like that. So it's too bad. It's too bad. It, it, over and over again, that kind of was the the MO of, that played out in the South that, you know, these basically white men were allowed to kill African-Americans over and over again and get away with it, essentially. Right. Uh, let's talk about one of those and probably the really kind of the focus in the book, Byron D. LeBeckwith, mm-hmm. um, killed, of course, Mississippi NAACP leader, Medgar Evers, was sure in the interviews that you did with him. I mean, that's one of the things people get when they pick up your book is they get to go with you into these places where your wife is telling you, don't you dare go to these places. And I got to say it, it sounded scary to me. But anyway, um, he's, he's completely sure that God is on his side. Yes, in fact, he goes so far as to warn you of curses uh, if you would write against him. But I mean, you write that, of course, you saw God working through your own reporting and, and you're praying that justice would be done. I thought of Lincoln's second, second inaugural address with both sides claiming God there. Of course, like Lincoln, I'm thinking, how can you invoke God's blessing on hatred and murder? But I'm wondering, were there ever times when your own faith was shaken or you just wondered when you're faced with this kind of evil, even sitting across the table? Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you process that as a Christian? How are you thinking about that as a man of faith? Yeah, it's 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 incredible, uh, you know, for people to invoke, you know, Christianity and, and, and carry out such awful evil. I mean, it is historic, unfortunately, uh, as well, uh, because obviously Christianity is a, you know, peace, teaches peace. And, right nonviolence and all those things. It's horrifying and it's horrifying to be face to face with it. But in terms of my faith and doubt and all that kind of stuff, um, I mean, that there's kind of a point in the book where uh, in the story where it looks like nothing is going to happen with the uh, killings of the three civil rights workers at Cheney Goodman Schwerner. And so I literally went out and and I, well, first, I, I remember the, there was a scripture uh, from Jeremiah that says, uh, I'm the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? And I just said, come across that verse. And I was like, I, you know, I, I need to pray about this, really, really pray about this because, um, it, you know, I know God loves justice. And so I, I, it just struck me. And so I put that scripture on my computer, you know, reminded me. Uh, that scripture about I'm the Lord, the God of all mankind is anything too hard for me. I put that posted out on my script on my computer or my wallpaper on my computer. I posted the, the reward poster with the pictures of the three civil rights workers, just to, as a reminder, don't forget about us. And I went and then I prayed obviously for justice. And uh, I mean, it, it happened actually, you know, not because of me. Right. The, the movie, is part of, as you said here right away, as part of your interest in this topic. Um, and during that period of time, we had several movies produced about you know these um, these incidents. What sort of a role did you see generally? Of, I mean, you talk about 
reminders that's everything Alabama and Mississippi have been trying to do is to not remind themselves. I think it's accurate. I think it's accurate. And I'd say I'd say America as a whole, really. I mean, to I mean, I think it's true of America as a whole. Yeah. So your what role did the movies play in helping to bring some of these things back into the, the conscious? Well, they brought it into my conscious. If it hadn't been for the movie Mississippi Burning, I wouldn't have been there and I wouldn't have been there with the FBI agents and None of this would, you know, at least my journey wouldn't have happened. Maybe it would have. And the actual screening, right? I went to a press screening. It was actually a press screening. It wasn't like, you know, for the public. It was for the press. And I was there and two FBI just happened to be there. And there was a journalist who covered the case. And so literally, as I kind of thought of him at the time, I was 29 these three old men, you know, now I'm old, um, started explaining all this to me. And I, I didn't really understand any of it. I knew nothing like this was not on my radar at all. Like I didn't know anything about this, the killings, any of this. This was all news to me. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Now, one of the things that's most disturbing reading through the book is that and I'll get to this in the end. There is at least one case where there's remorse and there's change. Yeah. Um, you don't talk. You don't talk much about the case of of Tommy Terrence, though. He's another person who dramatically changed from this time period. I've actually written about Terrence. I wrote this piece. I did a whole narrative piece before this okay. book uh, okay. for the newspaper. It was a serial narrative called "The Preacher and a Klansman," and it was about John right. Perkins, who's a. Uh, uh, you, you know, John and uh, African-American right. preacher who got involved in the civil rights movement. And Tommy Terrence probably know his story. Klansman who's involved in he was involved in a lot of Klan violence and then, of course, uh, came to faith. So, right. Yeah, I've done uh, interviews with him as well. And just a fascinating story. So there are cases of of transformation and remorse. And I'll get to one of those later, um, but not always <laughs> and maybe even not usually. That's the majority of the time. No, you know, so. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how do you process that? Does it surprise you when you're talking with Byron D. LeBeckwith and to the end, just no remorse, no repentance? No, I think he, he felt he did the right thing. You know, yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of like he, you know, even when you say thou shalt not kill, he would say, well, actually thou shalt not do no murder or something, you know what I mean? To try to make a, theological distinction on those kinds of things. So it's really fascinating, his mindset. I don't think any of these guys were really, other than as the, the other one you're mentioning. Uh, right. Well, we might as well jump in right there now and talk about Billy Roy Pitts. Tell us a little bit about about his story. I mean, you, you can go ahead and narrate some of that. Vernon Damer was a uh, farmer, businessman, and the LACP leader. He believed in that all Americans should have the right, truly have the right to vote. The Klan didn't like that. Attacked him and his family in the middle of night, January 10th, 1966. Klan set their house on fire, began firing their guns into the house. Vernon Dinger woke up, grabbed his shotgun, ran to the front of the house, began firing back the Klansmen so his family could escape safely out of that window. But unfortunately, the flames of the fire seared his lungs and he died later that day. A few weeks later, in the mail came his voter registration card. Mm. He fought his whole life for the right of all Americans to be able to vote, but never been able to cast a ballot himself. And so Sam Bowers, the head of the Klan in Mississippi, White Knights, uh, was the one who ordered that. And he had they had skated. He had not been convicted in that case. And Bill Roy Pitts was involved in that killing, 
dropped his gun, got caught, a plea guilty to murder, got a life sentence for that, plea guilty federal charges, and got five years for that. And um, and basically, I found out that Pitts had never served his life sentence, essentially, and uh, which sounds incredible, but it's true. Uh, that he had never actually served a day of his life sentence. And so uh, tracked him down, talked to him, interviewed him. And, and uh, anyway, the trial took place and, and uh, Sam Bowers was convicted. Uh, and Bill Pitts testified against him during that, that trial. And then after the trial was over with, there was a, and Bowers was convicted since the life in prison. This was in 98 when this happened. Not too long after that, uh, Pitts testified in a hearing, and when he did, um, you know, he basically walked to the back of the courtroom and ran into uh, Ellie Damer, the, the widow of Vernon Damer, and he apologized to her uh, for killing her husband and asked her to forgive him, and she forgave him, and she began to cry, and the, and and he began to cry. And there, there's such a such a lesson in that, isn't that for us? You know, this, you know, isn't that kind of what God does for us? Forgives us when we have no business being forgiven, and isn't that kind of what redemption is all about? Trying to make things right, yeah. Yeah. even when they've gone so terribly wrong. Yeah. Well, I've I've focused a lot, and what I was drawn to in so many cases with the book were these misuses misuses and abuses of christianity and of faith and trying to understand how the more thoroughly christianized a place could get seemingly the worse it would get no, I, I, no. well because it's a it's a it's a facade of christianity and not the real thing unfortunately i mean how yeah. could you allow people to be mistreated on such a level treated less than human let's just be real honest about it right but I think that's that's at the root of what the problem is, you know, from a faith perspective, you know, looking to scripture, you would say we're not really reading this thing or not really reading, reading what it says, because justice is not just about what happens in the courtroom. It's about how we treat each other, how we treat the least of these. Right. You know, it's how we how do we treat the oppressed? How do we treat the afflicted? How do we treat the poor? Um those are that's kind of a common theme, isn't it? You know, throughout throughout scripture. Well, and even worse, sometimes I wonder if we are reading it, we're just ignoring it, or we're finding ways no. to be able to justify, like you said, "Thou shalt not kill." Well, that I mean that that means just certain this or that or the other. Right. Exactly. I mean, and there's there are always ways we can rationalize away sin if we're motivated. I, exactly. I mean, it happens still to this day. I mean, people rationalize whatever it is. It does. Yeah, that, that's why the, the book, I mean, it feels so contemporary in many ways, because as much as we would like to imagine that all of this is confined to the 1960s, and some of it, of course, is. We don't see the same level of clan violence in Correct. the same ways. I mean, we've exchanged some of those shotguns for tiki torches, so I suppose that's improvement. Well, you're still having violence, so you're still having the increase lately in white nationalism and, and white supremacy and violence. Police brutality in certain cases. Yeah. So, yeah. we uh, Charleston, uh, where, the, where the Dylan Roof walked in, and Charleston and killed the nine beautiful people. Yeah. 
and and you yeah. know and you you know uh, two years ago in Pittsburgh in the synagogue right. where it killed eleven people because right. he was trying to eliminate the Jews and yeah. and then a year ago in El Paso the guy said he was trying to stop an invasion yeah. of the United States. I mean, it's yeah. all connected up to, and this is the way I think about it. It's all connected up to how do we regard others, and it mm-hmm. does definitely relate to scripture. So uh, to think about, uh, apart from scripture, think about from this perspective, do we make people less than, you know, or is there there a certain group of people or certain people that hold political, political views or whatever they are? I mean, it doesn't have to be political views, but any view, do we regard them of a particular race or a particular group or whatever as less than in some way? And so what happens is our rhetoric, um, if I'm if I'm saying about some group or some person, they're a monster, for example. Yeah. Well, then if I go kill that person or or I try to destroy them figuratively, let's say, then I'm justified. Right. Because, I mean, I'm doing society a favor if I'm doing, you know, taking, you know, taking out a monster. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, what reminds me of the original justification for the Ku Klux Klan in the context of Reconstruction, the idea we're simply doing this to be able to protect people, to restore order. You're, you're of course, right that there are all these examples of the similar kinds of violence that persist. I think I must have just been thinking so specifically about Alabama and Mississippi and their historic roles there. But really, you're exactly right. You're pointing out how this has spread. It's so easy for the rest of the nation to see, and I'm not trying to beat everybody else up and or get Mississippi and Alabama off the hook. Not at all. But what I think is they should need to see Mississippi as a mirror. We are a mirror of America. We are not just some something to point at and say, oh, look how terrible Mississippi is. I think if if all people do is is see that and, and point, they miss the point. Because the point is, this is a mirror for all of us, I think, in America, and a burden, I think, that all of us carry um, as a nation, because it is it is a historical burden this nation carries. It, it dates back to the creation of the Constitution. I mean, we, we it's embedded in the Constitution itself. Right. Yeah, Robert Penn Warren talks about this and how the Civil War sort of things diverged there. It became this sort of merit of righteousness for the North and this great shame for the South, but it obscured what they shared in common in terms of their responsibility, just as you described right there and sort of let the North off the hook as if they couldn't do these things. When, of course, we remember King said the most notorious racist city he experienced was Chicago. Exactly. So, which he seems to have barely avoided a full-blown police-led riot uh, toward the end of his life. So, a couple more questions here. Do you notice any difference in how successive generations view these years, these years you wrote about in the 1960s, or perhaps want to deal directly with the legacy? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, my sense is when you talk about this particular history, is that a lot of people don't know it. Right. I mean, and that's a, the reaction I've gotten to my book, which has kind of been fascinating, is a certain number of people in reading the book have said to me, I never knew all that happened. Like people, including someone that I talked to who's a veteran of the civil rights movement, they said, oh, I didn't know all that happened. And so I think it's just uh, the, the civil rights movement has unfortunately gotten shorthanded into 
Rosa Parks sat down, Martin Luther King stood up, and right. uh, African Americans got their rights. There's so much more to that. There were so many ordinary people, as we might say, of extraordinary courage who stood up, and and local people who whose names aren't even known. And uh, I think it's a it's a story we need to know. And I'm hoping my book, in that sense, helps in that, uh, helping not that it's a be all and end all of all this information, but it can, people can begin to learn. My own experience, Jerry, has been um, for the last, well, several years, but especially in the last year, I've spent a lot of time teaching civil rights movement in Birmingham and especially to younger people, millennial generation and younger. And I didn't know how people were going to respond. And the response has been overwhelmingly positive in the sense of we need to know this. We had no idea. And I'm pointing to literal like streets blocks away saying, hey, do you know what happened here? Do you know what happened here? But I've learned not to assume, especially with younger people, not to assume hostility, but to assume ignorance. I think that's accurate. I think that's what I've found in talking to students a lot of times that they're just they don't know it. I mean, I talk to student groups all the time. Even adults, too. I, I on my Facebook page and Twitter page, um, I post this thing called Today in Civil Rights History. And it's amazing how many people, both black and white, say, I never knew this. They never taught me this in school. Right. And they don't know it in part because their parents and grandparents didn't want them to know about it and didn't tell them about it um, and wanted to forget. That's kind of the theme that I keep popping up with is you refused to ignore or forget things that everybody else or many other people wanted to forget. It's a history we don't talk about and don't want to talk about. And yet... It, there, there's something freeing about the truth, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, it uh, might even be a biblical phrase right there. Um, one of the – your book is about justice delayed, but of course justice finally delivered. Um, the scene at Beckwith's conviction feels to me like a, a foretaste of Judgment Day. And so interesting, the jurors had prayed together. Uh, one of them yeah. even cited an invisible presence that came over them. I'm wondering for you, Jerry, what was the most satisfying moment for you when you finally saw justice done? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I think it was satisfying. Uh, that was the most moving emotionally, I think, uh, of all of them, just because it never had, you know, this was a new experience to me. Um, so yeah, that was probably the most moving moment was seeing that and, and, uh, and not thinking it might happen. I mean, cause it looked like the jury might hang up again and like it did back in 64 and, and then, and then all that happened. It was just, it, it did. It felt, it felt very divine. I mean, the whole thing, the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, one last question, again, in talking with uh, Jerry Mitchell about his book, Race Against Time, a reporter reopens the unsolved murder cases of the civil rights era. Uh, your longtime employer, the Clarion Ledger, I think we safely say did not distinguish itself for good in the 1960s. <laughs> well, that would be, uh, that would be, uh, how about it was a horrible racist newspaper? The, in the, the, the headlines, I mean, the problem is, the problem is, Jerry, I have to short, I have to sell it short here because I can't repeat the headlines. I know they're awful <laughs> from from the the March on Washington in 1963, which you include I in know. here, just absolutely horrible. And I could have included worse, but but that would have actually been worse than what I included. Oh goodness! So no, it's a it's a family podcast here, Jerry. So, uh, um, 
when did, and I've been looking for turning points, maybe around the movies, maybe when your generation is is coming into their own professionally and they can turn their attention back to this. I'm looking for a turning point when perhaps the Clarion Ledger's leaders knew they needed to redeem themselves from well, this. Well, I think it happened. I think it kind of forced us to do that. I think a material, I know when I got those Sovereignty Commission records and uh, that spy, this still, you know, kind of a segregation spy agency records that showed our own newspaper had been a, very much a part of all the problem. And as I told them, I mean, hey, we're going to have to, we need to write this story. Otherwise, somebody else is. And so they let me uh, do their credit. And uh, I basically did a story about how that we had killed stories and written racist propaganda on the, for the Sovereignty Commission, essentially, helping out the Sovereignty Commission. So, uh, yeah, it ran, ran in the Clarion Ledger. And that's one of the first things you realized in this whole process was this went to the top of the state. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's no question about that part. Um, Well, it is, I find, a. I agree, the truth sets us free. And I believe the time is right for us to really own up to this truth and at least start with knowing it and uh it's what jerry mitchell does in race against time a reporter reopens the unsolved murder cases of the civil rights era jerry thank you for your years of of service um to god and to the church and to our public especially through uh your your gifting in journalism thanks jerry well thanks colin and i just want to thank you know it's uh, thank you for having me and 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 you know it, this is god was at work in all of this i really believe that as a matter of faith with me but i really believe that uh, amen thanks jerry thanks thanks for listening to this episode of gospel bound with colin hansen join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age Visit tgc.org slash gospelbound to find transcripts and past episodes, subscribe to my newsletter, and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ.